Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. God. Hello, welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. New year, new content. It's 2022, we're doing great. We are trying. We are succeeding. Thriving. And uh, now that we are once again in many places specifically where we live back in back in lockdown back to a cloistered life what better time (laughs) to discuss the history of you know religious life monks nuns people living far away in monasteries (laughs) i mean we're also going to discuss other people who take on you know religious roles in the community in that sense but that was my segue. It was excellent. Well done. Thank you. I try. So, <laughs> so as per usual. That was my gift to you. I'm so glad that you've deigned to like my my attempts to uh, segue things nicely. All right. So as per usual, uh, I'm going to start off. I'm going to talk about religious life in the European Middle Ages. Um I will start this right off by saying I am exclusively focusing in on Christianity in the Middle Ages uh, because that is what I have enough training to actually speak on in a like <laughs> somewhat intelligent manner. Um, obviously, Christianity was not the only religion in Europe at the time in the Middle Ages, but it was certainly by far the dominant one. And when we are talking about this, these specific roles, right, where you are taking a specific, um, like, position sort of within the community of either being uh, ordained clergy or of being part of these religious orders in a monastic life, that is something that really, um, like, flourishes within... Uh, Christian Europe, specifically with regards to um, a monastic life. That becomes very popular, and we're going to talk about that a bit today. And then Margot will take it away and talk about the new world. The new world. North America. Very nice. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) That was was it. Oh, okay. I just, I wasn't sure how much much preamble. I'm like like the supreme... uh, partner in terms of segues well doing so much better <laughs> the audacity all right <laughs> so we're gonna actually get started now on religious vocations in history yeah i'm gonna start off yeah. with christianity in the middle ages and to do this there's basically two kind of main components i guess we can talk about are two two 
paths. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is the ordained clergy. So these are the people who are the leaders in the church, which um, in both the like medieval Christianity and then like like both within Orthodoxy and Catholicism and the Uniat churches, there's the, the same general structure of deacons, priests, bishops. Those are the three kind of designations of people who are ordained clergy. They are supposed to be leaders within the community and do the religious leadership. And then you have the monastic life slash religious orders, which is like monks and nuns. And some of them are cloistered or more or less like removed from the wider world. And some of them do, you know, go out into the world to do assorted charity work or education or missionary stuff. So we're going to talk about all of that. Let's start off with the ordained clergy. Uh, so we start off with the deacons. This is something that is basically seems to have come right from the beginning of Christianity. Um, there is mention of deacon in the ancient Greek and it seems to have originated this position um, when the apostles selected seven men to assist in the charitable work of the early church. Um, the word deaconess doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but there is a woman, Phoebe, who's mentioned as a deacon. So there is um, a female deacons mentioned both in the Bible and also by Pliny the Younger. Uh, circa the uh, second century uh, CE. So basically, this is something that was open to both men and women, and then it becomes only open to men, and now sometimes women can be question mark. <laughs> it's, that is one of the few leadership roles that women were allowed to have um, in these situations. So there are, you know, Basically, this idea of a permanent diaconate in the early church, right? Where, like, this was a... This diaconate. Oh, you think that's funny? <laughs> We're going to get into a lot of fun words today. Um, basically, they were there to assist with church matters and charity work and that sort of thing. And for the first few centuries... That was a permanent position you could go into, and that was that was fine. Um, but beginning around the 5th century, there's a gradual decline in the diaconate as a permanent life stage, um, especially in the Latin church. In the Eastern church, like the Orthodox church, permanent deacon, still a thing. Um, whereas in the Latin West, so think places that were not Eastern Orthodox in the Middle Ages, you more and more <laughs> from the 5th century start seeing um, deacons just being a step on the way to priesthood. So only if your plan was to become a full-fledged priest would you be allowed to be ordained as a deacon. During the Mass, the deacon has the responsibilities of assisting the priest, proclaiming the gospel, announcing general intercessions, <laughs> and also distributing communion. They also are sometimes allowed to preach the homily. Um, so they can't do all of the tasks that a priest could do, 
but that sounds like a a bunch of them though yeah exactly like they they are there to do a lot of a lot of work within the community but and um during the actual celebration of mass but you know there are still certain restrictions on what they can and cannot do so for example um they cannot on their own celebrate the mass you need a priest to do that um they cannot hear confession and they cannot go to an like they they can be there obviously at anointing of the sick but they are not allowed to anoint the sick that is not like they haven't leveled up so then you have to level up (laughs) if you want to do that and become a priest who, who is the final boss is the final boss god in this analogy <laughs> no the fi- well i guess the final boss is the pope but oh, okay. like that's you can't become god but you can become the pope if you level up enough times okay <laughs> we're, we're getting there we're getting there <laughs> so the priesthood is the office of kind of the like minister of the religion um so it's it it gets like dicey about how exactly we use this word right because technically like bishops and deacons both fall under priestly orders um because all of these like cleric roles are technically priests and if we're think if you if you're thinking about like your local parish priest it would technically be a presbyter or a pastor but in for for the most part in layman's terms we all call them priests like that's just it's it's something that has started a long time ago and people just keep doing it today this is a fun fact is the church has different rules for priests in the latin church um like as in the latin catholic church than they do for the 23 eastern catholic churches because notably priests in the latin church have to take a vow of celibacy whereas most of the eastern churches eastern catholic churches permit married men to be ordained so that's a fun fact today yeah get it priest (laughs) within the holy bounds of matrimony yes (laughs) otherwise it would be a sin Okay, so basically, the way that this works historically, though, is even in the uh, Latin West, priests were allowed to be, like, married men could be ordained as priests until the uh, 12th century. Basically, um, you have the Second Lateral Council in 1139, where they say, okay, no more no more married priests in the west um there was a whole bunch of reasons for this all that money. but yeah most of it was uh we want priests to stop getting married and then trying to pass down church land to their sons who like not then priests. go off and become not priests <laughs> um and it was also a consideration of you know we don't love that the parish priest is like uh, you know at at this point in the lateran councils they're really trying to to crack down on on rules regarding like marriage and what are the rules around getting married what are the rules around 
putting forward a marriage uh what are the rules with like because as we've talked about in our marriage episode right like do you need to have witnesses Mm -hmm. you need to have this there's also the like back and forth about like you know okay who is allowed to get married and they're basically hammering this out that like no we don't want you like if you want to be a priest then that means you have to like give up basically the possibility of getting married so that's where that comes from is they have to be celibate is also the fact right that like in the middle ages there is this evolving idea of okay what is a priest's role what is a priest supposed to do and it's basically this idea that only a priest can give like can celebrate the mass and the mass uh particularly in the latin rite is supposed to be like basically the ceremony of the eucharist where you perform like the story of the last supper where the priest distributes Uh the bread right Mm -hmm. so he's supposed to be taking on this role of jesus in distributing bread to to everybody else for the salvation of their souls so and since jesus didn't marry and was celibate his whole life it's like okay well you're also supposed to take on that burden in the same way it's it's a whole time but that's you know that's what that would look like. <laughs> um, and that's that's where that comes from. So that's just a, a fun fact that half of, solid half of the Middle Ages, they were like, yeah, it's fine if you're married. It's okay. And then they're like, absolutely not. We have to put a stop to this. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And then last but not least, last and most, we reach the rank of bishop, which, again, uh is basically an ordained minister who is responsible for teaching doctrine, governing the, like, laity in his jurisdiction, sanctifying the world, and representing the church. (laughs) So, that's... Quote. (laughs) Um, That is... That's a quote. Um, No, but basically, the point of a bishop is... Uh, typically, if you're going to be a bishop, you need to have, like, um, you have to have been a priest for at least five years. You, uh, current, in the current, uh, world, you have to be in possession of a doctorate of theology or canon law, like, in current day. But, you know, back in the day, things were a little bit faster and looser in terms of who could become a bishop. Um, but you did definitely still need to... In, in the Middle Ages, you would still be looking at going to schooling for a long time and then being a priest for <laughs> X number of years, which the number of years would depend on, you know, the time and the place because these rules change a lot. And typically you had to have like a pretty, pretty solid reputation or mm-hmm. if you lacked a solid reputation, you could potentially just be very, very wealthy and pay people off because that's a thing too. You can buy your way into heaven, Devin. Hey, buy your way into heaven. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically, <laughs> the point of a bishop is that you're supposed to be sort of the, 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 the mini boss, if you will, because then you can still reach up to archbishop, as in like, and uh, again, like yeah, like, I was gonna say there's there's more steps. There are more steps, but typically, but they are additional titles. Um, so like 
the Pope is still the Bishop of Rome, right? Yeah, the Bishop. Or like the the Archbishop of Canterbury is still the Bishop of Canterbury. So like when you're looking at like the clerical sort of yeah the 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 skill tree so, like there's like the so what are cardinals the bishops of cardinals are the are still bishops within their own jurisdictions um but they're like they have authority over other bishops but they don't like they, like there's no um right like the reason it's not considered a separate thing is because they still have like these are all additional titles right so like, like assistant regional manager yeah exactly exactly <laughs> I, I mean genuinely like people like you laugh but like that's honestly but yeah i mean basically I, I mean we i think that is the thing is that this is very much a i i would argue that uh the like catholic and orthodox like structure of like how you do this honestly does very much translate into how people run things today um into, no like genuinely in terms of like a hierarchical yeah. management structure and like that is i'm not gonna say that's where it comes from because i'm sure there were hierarchical structures before but it's definitely something that like there's a reason that a lot of places, like a lot of um, kings and other rulers convert to Christianity and are like, ah, yes, we will definitely become Christians. And then like all of their subjects are like, I guess, I guess we're doing this now. And I mean, a big part of it is like, you have these people who are educated, like they can read and write, they can do math. And they also already have a built-in, like, organizational system where they're like, okay, <laughs> we know how to, like, keep things. <laughs> we, like, the trains are going to run on time. <laughs> there are oh. no trains yet. But that's part of why they, no, like, genuinely, that's why yeah. they like it. Because they're like, oh, we have these people who can, like, read and write and, like, who are gonna vertical integration vertically integrate this like why not like we'll cooperate with you if you're gonna like help us keep things let us know like what's going on if you're able to write letters that'd be great because i'm an illiterate person from like the woods <laughs> oh my god just generally just like general the woods the woods <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but like, I'm just saying the first few the first few centuries of medieval Europe are like people just being like, "Wow, reading and writing, truly magic." Like, well, they didn't have writing. I know. That's what I'm saying. They're just like, "This is great." Sorry, I got distracted by my cats. Yeah. Uh, so basically, <laughs> that's what that is. So you basically have vertical integration of people being like, how do we yeah. make sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing, more or less. Now we can talk about monks and nuns. So basically, they live a... Monks and nuns and monks and nuns and monks and nuns and monks and nuns 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 and nuns
so basically, so these can include <laughs> both ordained and unordained people. So there can be like people who are ordained priests who are also living in a monastery, which just makes them technically right. a monk, right? Like the the Venn di- there is a Venn diagram. However, okay, for the most part, monks and nuns are not ordained. Okay. But they are people who have decided to live a consecrated life. Um, okay. Where basically the, the point is you're supposed to like reject like worldly things, reject like owning property, having money, having like, you know, you uh, take certain vows typically of uh, poverty chastity and obedience Mm -hmm. so poverty you're not allowed to own anything like on your Mm -hmm. own so you can't like i don't know go and become a become a like i mean i go buy my own house and stuff uh chastity duh you're not allowed to get married or have sex outside of marriage obviously (laughs) and then obedience is you basically have to do what your religious order tells you to do so like if you've joined up to become a monk and you're supposed to follow, um, like, if you sign up, basically, to become a monk or a nun, like, you have to follow the rules of that monastery or of that order that you've joined, right? Um, right. They do have, there are different rules and different orders. Um, some of them focus more on learning. Some of them focus more on prayer. Some of them focus more on charitable work. But, like, you know, if you are supposed to get up at a certain time, go, like, help prepare the breakfast do whatever it's like you know you can't just be like no i'm gonna go do my own thing like you have decided to be part of this community yeah except for now have you seen that like a bunch of the convents are like you have to fall in this nice sweet spot of poverty where you have to like take a vow of poverty but you can't already be really poor like so you can't come in with student debt yeah, you can't come in with student debt, I think, because of, like, I do, I do not know the modern day. Um, oh, it's because the convict doesn't want to pay it off. Yeah, but I think I, but I think that's from the, because, like, if you come in with regular debt, right, like, you're allowed to do that. It's because student debt is, like, the super special kind that you can't yeah. discharge. I, I'm just yeah. clarifying that, like... This is more of a f- issue of the government, both of our, like, many governments have decided that student debt is a super duper special debt that you can never, ever, ever discharge, ever. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, because I think but... with, like, regular debt, if you join a religious order, like, I think you can, it, like... Yeah you can like dissipate it yeah like it'll magic it away but with student debt they're like no yeah we need your brain back and since then you wouldn't be a very good nun they won't let you do that yeah and the convents don't want to pay it yeah which like i'm not gonna fault convents for not no i'm not paying it Like, I don't see how you can... We live in a nightmare world. Oh, yeah, no, we live in a nightmare world. But, like... (laughs) You're condemned to poverty the church won't even accept. (laughs) This is fair. 
it is a nightmare hellscape that we live in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's where we're that's where we're at. Um. Anyway, let's talk about the history yeah, of monastic so obedience. Life. <laughs> right. So you're supposed to follow the rules of whatever community yeah. you've joined. Um, yep. So you have early Christian ascetics, right, in like the first and second mm-hmm. century. Um, some of them would just live entirely on their own. Some of them would go off in communities. Um Right, so you would have communities of virgins who would consecrate themselves to Christ and say, we're never getting married, we just want to live in our little commune, essentially, and, like, worship Jesus and not interact with men. And I'm like, honestly, love that for them. (laughs) Second century woman living in the desert? Like, yes, go live in the desert. Do it. Do it, girl. You also had... Follow your dreams. Exactly. You also had the desert fathers who again would go out into the literal desert and just be like well i live in this cave now everybody leave me alone while i pray that's like the ultimate like no bed frame man move (laughs) male living space (laughs) just a fucking dirty cave (laughs) i mean that is the thing is that like the level of how ascetic you had to be like like asceticism could look like many things and it does change mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. um in in some cases people were just straight up hermits like living in a cave or like a hut uh my personal favorite yeah. is saint guthlock he's my swamp man who uh, (laughs) decides to become a monk and then goes lives in a monastery and then says you know what this still is not like this is not strict enough for me this is not ascetic enough for me so then he goes out into the fens of england which is like basically a (laughs) swamp and he finds a sad lonely little island and builds himself a hut and then just lives in the hut on like just like by himself in his hut I mean, like, the longer that this whole COVID thing goes on and the more I have to listen to it go talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I do want to live in a hut in the middle of nowhere where no one can tell me what to do. I mean, he was also, he only allowed himself to eat, like, you know, a slice of bread every, like, one slice of bread a day Okay, and, like, drank water. (laughs) I mean, I will say he did apparent he did allegedly receive the ability to talk to animals though. So like OG Disney princess is what I'm saying. Just like out there talking to the birds, living in his hut. Was not a result of extreme isolation no. and starvation. No, and then also the demons came and carried him bodily into the pits of hell. And then Saint Bartholomew came down from heaven told the devil to let Guthlack go and then, you know, obviously St. Bartholomew was powerful enough to do that because then Guthlack went back to his hut. I really love okay, medieval so- saint stories, okay? Just let me have so- this. So- so They're great. Those are, those are excellent and fully deserve sainthood. Um, the guy who does not is <laughs> what's-his-face who just got milked on because that guy was super lame. Oh, I know who you're talking <laughs> It took me a 
minute. <laughs> the one who gets lactated on by the statue, and it's like, you didn't do anything. If anything, the statue gets to be a saint. But did the statue choose you, Margot? The statue chooses who to lactate on, all right? It didn't even happen for real. It was a dream. This guy just had a kinky dream, and they were like, dude, saint. Well, I'm pretty sure he did some other stuff, but we'll, we'll, we can circle back. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's in, you know, kind of antiquity. We have people starting out these monastic... Correction these to my thesis. Monastic communities. Um, and in some cases, just straight up being hermits. But then the Middle Ages come around. The Roman Empire falls. Everything is bad. I mean, not everything, but you know, it's it's rough. It's not great. It's it's somewhat Mad Max out there. Um, it's warlords. It's wild. And uh, then you at at the same time have this parallel movement of more and more. Um, people. Uh, converting to Christianity and also wanting to, you know, engage in this spiritual life. In comes Benedict of Nursia, who creates Benedictine monasticism. So he's basically the father of Western monasticism, undoubtedly. The rule of St. Benedict is one of the most, um, like, most popular for lack of a better word, and one, one of the most followed rules. Um, so a rule was based, the rule of St. Benedict, and you, you would have other rules like the rule of so-and-so, right? And that's basically, they would set out your, how, how you were to live within the monastic community. How was the correct way to live in a monastic community? Mm-hmm. So in the rule of St. Benedict, the monastic life was supposed to consist of prayer reading or like learned pursuits and manual labor so prayer was the first priority apart from prayer you were then supposed to do learned tasks such as you know reading texts copying out texts right like that's where we get illuminated manuscripts uh and learning and practicing medicine And last but not least, they had to do manual labor, which sounds much more like that makes it sound absolutely awful when it's like they were supposed to work in the gardens or in the fields. Like the point was, if you were going to become a monk or a nun in a Benedictine monastery, like you were supposed to be self-sufficient. You were supposed to, you know, till your land. Yes. Tend the gardens. Make make cheese tend bees brew beer or make wine right like you were supposed to be self-sufficient and of course this you know actually does become very very appealing to a lot of people because once again sounds it's i mean it sounds it sounds dope but also the the rest of the world is kind of in a mad max fury road situation very hungry yes and uh then you have monasteries which by definition, are removed from the world. They were often built far away from centers of civilization. Uh, Typically, big stone enclosed buildings with walls. (laughs) Like, you know, you're somewhat protected. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, you can just kind of you're you're gonna have food. You're gonna have a safe place to live until the Vikings show up. But you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask uh, yeah if this was around the time of the like Vikings and Saxon invasion. Yes, very much so. So basically, um, they didn't give a, they didn't they didn't give a crap about your like religious exemptions <laughs> yeah exactly and that's like a big part of why this was a th- like this is a big part of why we get the image that we have today of like and I-, I think it is slowly being changed like public perception but maybe not so i'll address it here the vikings did not attack monasteries because the people living there were Christians. Like, they were not <laughs> like, yes, we must destroy this religion. No, they attacked them because they tended to be in the middle of nowhere, on the coast, and uh, the people inside of them were literally not allowed to kill them back, so it was a pretty dope place to go raiding, and there was usually, like, at least some a stuff work stuff. taking. Like, even if there wasn't a ton of stuff, there would still definitely be, like, stores of food, probably some amounts of precious metals, because, like... Slaves. Yeah, you can take slaves, you can take books, which are still valuable at this point, like, you can take assorted, like, crucifixes and, like, beaded rosaries and, like, nice furniture, like... There's stuff. Yeah. Like, have you seen a Catholic church? There's stuff in there. Like, you can take <laughs> it and then sell it. I'm just, it's balls to the wall stuff, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's in a monastery. It's maybe not yes. like the nicest stuff, but like, it's stuff. To be clear, um, we are not Viking slanderers here. Uh, they did not want to destroy Christianity. They're just equal opportunity. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Pillaging. <laughs> I mean, and I, I will say, you know, you get a lot of uh, writings about the Vikings that are like, they clearly want to destroy Christianity and they are <laughs> demons from hell itself. But once again, these are being written by monks who are maybe ever so slightly biased um, after their home <laughs> had been burnt down bit. and ransacked. So, you know. Yeah, so it's the 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 sad monks and the bitter, dirty husbands. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Who <laughs> refused to take a shower, and all the women were like, look at this beautiful, clean Viking man. Gonna go hang out with him instead. He's pillaged the monastery, so he's flush for cash. Exactly. Let's go back to He also, Norway, like, washes his clothes. So anyway, that's why people would want to live in a monastery. It's relatively safe, you know, unless you happen to be raided by the Vikings. You're basically guaranteed food, a bed, etc. And really the only trade-off is that you don't get to have sex, which, you know, overall, if you're, like, hanging out in the Middle Ages, you're like, well, that seems a small price to pay. (laughs) Especially if my husband is, like, a a, dirty man who doesn't (laughs) bathe. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so as the Middle Ages go on, you get a lot of changes. Uh, Basically, you get more and more orders cropping up and changes to the orders that exist. 
So, <laughs> as I said, the rule of St. Benedict came about in the 6th century. Um, and at the time, the monks and nuns were supposed to do manual labor. However, as the years passed, you have more and more of them have built up quite a lot of land. They're quite powerful. They're quite wealthy. So they start hiring people. So they end mm-hmm. uh, acquiring land that has serfs attached to it. So they're like, great. Now monks and nuns, we don't have to go and like do all this heavy lifting necessarily. Like I can be a nun or a monk and somebody else is doing the like tilling the fields, which does, you know, on one hand, allow them to produce beautiful works of illuminated manuscripts and, like, make developments in the fields of medicine and, like, science and other (laughs) things like that. But you do get, you know, and also, of course, uh, frees up time to do things like tending to the sick or the dying or the elderly or orphans because, again, uh, the monasteries were pretty much the only... Basically, the the structure of the church in the Middle Ages was like all the forms of social safety net rolled into (laughs) one. It's like, oh, you're dying? Here's our hospital slash hospice care, essentially. Mm -hmm. You're an orphan? Come on over. Like, you know? (laughs) But the point is, around the 11th century, some, some monks were getting together around... 1098 some some very religious people and said you know what no this isn't strict enough this is this is not okay that nuns and monks are not working as hard as they used to we need things to be like they were back in the good old days (laughs) so they found the cistercian order lazy entitled monks yeah exactly it's the lazy entitled monks Making no their, one wants to work anymore. Making their illuminated manuscripts with their useless humanities degrees. <laughs> so the Cistercians say, all right, you know what? We're going to be in even more remote locations than Benedictine monasteries. And everyone has to work hard and, and grind and hustle. Uh, so they okay, become very well known. For, like, going into the depths of, like, swamps. Like, just straight up swamps. swamps. And then, like, draining swamps. the whole swamp <laughs> to build their monastery. And, like, a bunch of them die from what's was probably malaria. It's a fascinating group. But they do also make a lot of... I, I mean, they, they make a lot of um, innovations in, like water like genuinely drainage like aquaculture like they do a good job i'm not gonna lie to you uh and then they also become incredibly wealthy so basically then once again you have more people who are like no this isn't what being a monk should be about so you get saint francis of assisi in 1209 (laughs) So now we're in the 13th century who says, no, we're going to be a mendicant order. We're going to be begging friars. Literally, we don't have a house. We do not have a building. You're just, you wear your robe and we're going to live like Jesus and we're going to preach on the street and beg for our food because we have to make our lives as difficult as possible. And then actually a lot of people join up and uh, they do finally end up allowing them to have like some amount of housing like structure but to this day the franciscan order is all about all about that poverty 
enforced poverty and living as Jesus did, where you just like have absolutely nothing. Which, like, listen, that's I'm not I'm not gonna. Did Jesus have absolutely nothing? I mean, he had a job. Yeah, but they're they're talking about the like preaching Jesus, you know, like when oh. when he turned thirty and then went on a road trip. I mean, like, also though. That didn't go super great for him. Well, I mean, anyway, I'm not convinced. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a Franciscan. Wow, I can't believe you don't want to become a Franciscan. <laughs> can't believe you don't want to give up literally everything and own nothing. But yeah, I mean, be a man. My, my point. Well, you can be a poor Claire. That's under the Franciscans. I can what? Be a poor Claire. There. Uh, what is that? That is the like female version of this. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, they're they're part of the um, because there's Claire of Assisi who, right, similar to Francis of Assisi, right? <laughs> yeah, what's going on in Assisi? Yeah, Assisi. You know, you just had a lot of people who were like, no, <laughs> no, it's time. It's time for poverty. It's time for voluntary <laughs> poverty. Where I just just devote my entire life to Jesus. Listen, I'm not advocating people choose that. I'm just saying there is definitely a there is a um, continuous like kids these days vibe where it's like no, it needs to be more extreme. So like you do get you know more and more asceticism, shall we say, in some of these right. orders. But then you have other orders that crop up at similar times, like the Dominicans in 1216. And their whole, they, this can encompass um, both men and women. Again, like, there's often, um, like, parallel um, groups under the same, mm-hmm. that, that live under the same rules, basically. Um, and basically their whole, their whole point was that they needed to, like, they were a scholastic organization. And mm-hmm. the whole point was that they were founded to preach the gospel and oppose heresy. In the 13th century, the order reached all classes of Christian society to fight heresy, schism, and paganism by word and book. And they went all over everywhere, from the north of Europe to Africa and even to Asia. So that's, you know. My point is there's a lot of different... There are many different genres of monk. You can live in a Benedict and nuns. You can live in a Benedictine monastery where you maybe are like mostly writing and making illuminated manuscripts. You can live in a swamp. You can and like get really good at drainage. You can become Mm -hmm. super duper poor. You can become super educated in biblical matters and then go and oppose heresy wherever it may be. Like you've got options. And my point is, I think like. Now, nowadays, you know, this is not as common of a thing as it once was. Um, But yeah, for most of the Middle Ages and then right up until the Reformation and well into the early modern period in places where the Reformation wasn't really a thing, like joining religious life in some capacity was very, very common. And it was like a very... Mm -hmm. um, 
it it was a choice many people made it was something that was in cases forced upon people like if your parents told you okay you are our fourth daughter and we cannot afford a dowry so like for you to marry a husband so we're sending you to a convent because they will still want like some kind of dowry but it's a hell of a lot less than a husband is going to ask for (laughs) dude husbands suck that's what I'm saying but I mean, mine personally doesn't, but, you know, if you're, like, a woman in the 10th century... <laughs> wow, I'm telling JV. Can't believe you put this on the internet. No. My 21st century husband is great. I don't think that... However, I do not think that having a husband in, like, the 10th century was always the most fun. Probably not. You know, between the like being in the tenth century was probably not the most. <laughs> I mean, fun. it was not great, but I'm just saying, like, you know, there there was a lot of like dying in childbirth going on, like, or yeah. or just like giving birth to twenty children. Like, there's just a lot of it. Like, there there were actually, and and there are. Um, you know, I think we've addressed this before, like writings um, where people will write letters to their daughters saying like, you know, maybe this does not Don't make do you this. super happy right now that we sent you to a monastery. But like, trust me, girl, this is better. <laughs> like, we're giving you a better <laughs> life. Um, and yeah, I think there is also, right, like it was for... um for men as well right like if you were like the fifth son it's like well you sure aren't gonna inherit any land really or like have many prospects but like this is an option for you where you can lead like a perfectly nice life um yeah but yeah so Um, that's that's my that that's what i have to say about that and why it was so so embraced and so common and the the ways that this life could have looked like for people awesome um speaking of younger sons i'm gonna start with jesuits Woo! another order that started in the middle ages that i didn't get to but i kind of figured you would bring up jesuits because like (laughs) quebec yeah quebec and also just in general new world (laughs) new world yeah send the jesuits Um, yeah, so Jesuits. I'm mostly going to talk about them in relation to Quebec because in some other places where they were also hanging out. Uh, I mean, if it's a place on Earth, the Jesuits have probably <laughs> been there. Uh, yeah. So I, I think um, I think at that point you have to pick one place if you're going to talk about them because otherwise we will be here for six months just talking about every place they've gone to. Yeah, so what I'm going to do for my little half is sort of a um, comparison of, like, the ways that religion has, like, influenced societal development in colonial North America. Um, I am specifically talking about, like, colonial religion, so Christianity and its various forms. Um, like obviously there's also a history of indigenous religions and they have their own systems of religious life that influences, but, um, like my focus of study is really more on colonialism and intercultural interactions. So, um, I don't really feel qualified to talk about indigenous religions. Um, I also wouldn't really feel super comfortable 
because uh, one, I don't really like the idea of comparing these religious practices um, to things that uh, people in our like colonial societies might be more familiar with, but also I don't want to be somebody who's discussing closed practices of which I am not a part. Right. Uh, that's the main one. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about uh, essentially just Christian religious practice in colonial North America. We're going to start out with Jesuits and we're going to start in France. <laughs> Not in North America at all. Well, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but so they're like, Jesuits are real big in France. They've got like a ton of schools like they do everywhere but um especially in the like more rural areas of france this is a main way to get your sons educated um because they had a lot of lay schools or colleges um that would essentially set it up so that like your son could read and write well and had a basic understanding of theology and diplomacy um and younger sons would often take up orders because there wasn't a lot else for them to do. Um, and one of the other things that was also going on were um, the... Essentially, once you took orders, you were assigned to a place to like do your teaching stint. Um, and so that could either be, like, in France or in other parts of Europe, depending on, like, what languages you had studied, or you could opt to go out into the wilds of the world to convert the heathen populations. <laughs> Oop. Yeah. Um, and one of the places that the especially... Uh, French Jesuits were heading to was um, Canada, or what is now known as Quebec. Um, and there were a lot of people who like went and spent, you know, a couple of years in Quebec and then came back and continued to teach at the French colleges and they would tell or and write all of these stories about like their adventures in Quebec and they really pitched it as like this wild untamed land full of adventure where you might be martyred for your cause um and this really spoke to a lot of people especially a guy that I'm going to be talking about later um because like people in this period I'm talking about uh the um, mid 17th century, uh, we're pretty gung ho about being martyred. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing like, not everyone universally, yeah. but like, it was like, oh, dope. Like, if I'm going to die, I might as well be martyred. Yeah, I mean, um, people. The, the martyrdom thing was, was big. It, it was a big yeah. deal because it's basically, you can die your way into heaven, basically. If you die a martyr, <laughs> yeah. it's practically a one, it, it's practically guaranteed. So, I mean, why wouldn't yeah. you do it? It's fast pass. Exactly. You get a clean slate. Um, well, not well, actually. The reality but, of know. whether or not 
Yeah, the reality of whether or not you are actually going to get your fast pass to heaven um, in the frontiers of Quebec was unlikely because despite what people were writing back um, and what you know, fur merchants and other people were, were writing back to France at the time, the likelihood that the Iroquois were going to take the time to murder you was slim to none. They, like, really didn't care. Um, so you were more likely to die of cold or starvation or a disease. You know, like, the, you weren't going to, like, be burned as a witch by the Iroquois like they just did they, they did not have time for like three dudes wandering around in the middle of nowhere yeah that's fair um so yeah they just essentially like let the Jesuits mostly be um which is going to come into play in sort of like another comparison I'm going to do with Spain um and were like they were the the indigenous peoples um especially the Algonquins were and like Algonquin speaking peoples, right? So that comprises a bunch of different um, actual like nations, bands, tribes. Um, we're like relatively interested in what they had going on. Um, the system of like religious understanding that the peoples of the um, American Northeast had going on. Um, made like a a christian worldview sort of made sense to them um and the jesuits had the backing of the french state at this time as well so like in a period of serious international strife um in the indigenous world at this period uh taking refuge in a monastery especially if you were a woman with children um, could be a really, like, it could be a decent life for yourself. You know, you were, yeah. you could get food and, and shelter and not, you know, be taken as a slave or whatever. If you didn't, you know, want that to be happening, you wouldn't be, like, caught up in a mourning war or something like that. It was right. a way to escape all of these sort of turbulent things that were happening outside of uh, the colonial world in this space. Um and and a like really interesting thing starts happening uh, in the theology of the Quebec Jesuits, um, and there's a really cool s- book um, about it called The Mohawk Saint um, by Alan Greer, who teaches at McGill. Um, yeah, <laughs> like plug in that. Yes, because um, Alan Greer needs us to plug him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> doing you a favor man (laughs) he really needs us to get the word out there about his work on canadian history uh, definitely not like one of the biggest names in the field but okay forefront historian on north american history (laughs) sorry anyway um, I really like this book, and I think that you should read it. <laughs> um, it's called The Mohawk Saint, and it's about this one particular woman who this... Uh, um, she was an Iroquois woman who had been taken in by these Jesuit brothers um, 
she was really sickly when she came to them. She had like some, they, I think tuberculosis. Cause she only, she died when she was like 30. Um, but she became like really, um, like a real fervent believer in, um, Christianity, which was pretty unique. Um, a lot of people who were seeking, uh, the assistance of Jesuit brothers would have to convert and be baptized. Um, but whether or not they actually like stuck to that when they weren't being fed or assisted, um, or if something like really big and traumatic happened to them while they were there, like the, it was questionable. So there was a lot of, um, like monks trying to baptize people on their deathbeds when they couldn't say no and then be like I saved a soul um and also a lot of people who had been baptized before when they were young and like sort of grown up adjacent to um a Jesuit community uh who when they were older and like were sick or injured would go back to their like original faith healer and be like no those dudes don't know what they're talking about and I want like someone who can actually commune with the creator to like help me with this disease and the Jesuits would like freak out they'd be like oh no um but this woman um as she was dying was still like yes Jesus is who I'm with and apparently um at the moment of her death um she had been like really abused in uh, war and like had all of these scars and stuff and apparently like all of the scars disappeared and she became like beautiful and young again and like there was no uh like evidence of her illness um apparently she like her her spirit left and her body became beautiful and the monks took this as a sign that like she was favored by God and that everyone needed to um, recognize the purity of her faith and try and emulate that. And this is really interesting because um, while there was this idea among French missionaries that what they were doing was really important because they could convert indigenous people to be good Catholics and eventually some generations down the line they would be like actually French um, the people that they were, like, actually interacting with were not seen as their equals, right? They were too close to nature to, like, really ever be good Christians. Um, but this story of Catherine, that was her, like, Jesuit, the name that the Jesuits gave to her, um, she sort of became this example of how converting people who were quote-unquote closer to nature could create this like more pure faith that could be an example to people from like the old world and that uh, this kind of faith could be what the the colony of Canada became or whatever um and that was a thing that was happening um and the Jesuits were really excited about it. And then uh, the English showed up and really s- screwed up the like idea of a, a French state in the New World. Um, and also uh, 
I'm going to talk about the sort of Spanish New World because because of the history of colonialism and the way that the um, state sort of developed in Quebec. Uh, the priest and missionaries were much more involved in building schools and politics than in sequestered and cloistered life. Um, French priests were advocates for a French Quebec um, in the face of English colonialism. Um, and there's a bunch of things that got, happened that they're like involved in. I'm not going to go super far into that, but essentially um, they're a major part of the um, French education system in Quebec, so right, the college system. Um, for a long time, all of those are religious organizations. Um, they had a, a whole lot to do with uh, creating the, the national identity, Quebec nationalism, and they had this whole thing about making sure that French women were having a whole buttload of babies um, so that there would be more French babies and then more French people than English people in Canada. It was called the Revenge of the Cradle, the big thing with French priests. Um, by comparison, for Catholics in the New World, uh, we have the Spanish New World, which is happening starting in, in, in Mexico. Um, and this was run by conquistadors who were soldiers um, who brought priests with them as sort of a way to protect their mission, which they were doing for God. Um, and they were going to conquer... was where they got their name, conquistadors, conquer this savage land. God. None of these guys were really passing the vibe check. I mean, <laughs> yeah, conquistador, pretty pretty rancid vibes all around. Like, I don't know how to tell you that most, <laughs> most Europeans who came to, like, the vast, vast majority of New Europeans who came here were like, at best kind of sketchy like at best a little yeah, sus. i'm not going to like i'm not going to go into the whole like oh well we shouldn't say all uh because there will always be like a, a counter i'm saying that all europeans who came here in this period were not passing a five check we're all pretty rancid yeah the only um, reason i say hashtag not all is specifically for like the women they sent over to be brides who were just like your options <laughs> oh, yeah. are like starving to death starving on the to death in London the street or, Paris, or like or being forced into being a brothel an servant or this man in Virginia yeah I'm like okay like I can't I can't really fault them ever all all the men this is a, that's that's what I'm saying all the hashtag men. all men hashtag all men in that period, not passing the vibe check. Yeah. Um, so I talk about this a bit in our um, witch hunt episode. Um, but the Spanish really got very confused by the indigenous religions in Mexico. Um, the Mexican society was... Uh, very robust. They had these huge cities um, with big, like, buildings and, like, 
the, these walled-in cities uh, and massive temples, and the religion was... Um, I'm going to say complex, not that like all religions aren't complex, but it was hierarchical um, in very specific ways. Like there were, uh, there was a, like a God and then like these lesser gods. And then it, it was very much like the hierarchy of angels and stuff. And so was the temples. Um, and they had these like big, massive structures and they had um, cloistered and celibate priests and nuns. Um, like women who were as virgins sort of given to the temple and like lived these cloistered lives um, but obviously they weren't about the Christian God or Jesus or the virgin all these things that were super important to these Catholic priests who were showing up and there was this idea in like old world Catholicism that the way that Satan manifested in the world was as a like that he would have his followers set up inversions of the true faith um, and that's what they saw all of these Mexican religions as and um, the fact that it was like so prevalent in these major cities and these people were so successful and like living prosperous lives and stuff was clearly um evidence that they had like all sold their souls and that their prosperity was a perversion of like the true faith and all this stuff um and so they also got this idea that like because everybody was now christian in europe satan did not exist there anymore and because of what they were seeing around them here right which was essentially like a interfaith miscommunication um they were like satan must literally be here in mexico and mexico at this time obviously like it was like a much larger territory extended into texas and all this stuff um but Satan is literally there, like their neighbors, and they're trying to take over these people um, who have these, like, you know, super complex cities and, like, lives and are doing really well for themselves. And they're like, no, you just got all of this from Satan. And so they went around um, essentially killing priests. They created these witch hunts because they were like, that's what, where all of your authority is coming from. You guys are a bunch of witches. Um, and then. If anybody um, was resisting, right, uh, this colonial rule, if there were any, uh, like, uh, indigenous people who were mounting a, an organized resistance to the Spanish rule, it was because um, they had been corrupted by this evil Satan religion and were using mind control on all of the other people who they were getting to resist them with. Um, and they were witches and they had to be killed and they would mostly kill them by um, hanging them upside down by their feet until they suffocated. Which was, like, horrifyingly painful and awful. Um, but as they developed the, like, colonial rule, um, churches and 
beca- the, the churches that these priests had set up became places like sites of colonialism and of government. Um, and they would move from place from populated place to populated place um, following the conquistadors who were like looking for whatever they were looking for. Um, but they would set up monasteries and convents and schools um, as a way of like conquering the, the population as well as the like leaders of the areas. Um, and they would take children away and put them in these schools. They would force women into convents. I don't know if any of this is feeling familiar to any Canadian audiences. Oh, but, no. Um, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 yeah, no, they, no. Like, <laughs> they stole children and put them in these like Catholic schools, and they forced women into convents. Um, they would eventually have like indigenous priests as well. But... Um, yeah, they then had, like, much more prevalence of, like, actual, like, cloistered religious life that you might see in Europe, but it wasn't a, like, yes, I found, like, a fervent faith. It was more a, I've been stolen from everyone I know and love and or all the men in my village were murdered in front of me, and now these are the only people who have food. Like, maybe I'll become a nun. Uh, and I will, like, run the, like, godly level of the school or whatever. Um, it was also a way to, um, like, hoard wealth and stuff that had been taken from the cities and stuff. So that's what's going on in Spain. And uh, in the, like, British North America area, things were different and also not Um, (laughs) because religious life for the protestants was very like fundamentally different from uh, religious life in catholicism right it's not not as like ordered or hierarchical i mean it is it is and it isn't so we're going to talk specifically about the puritans okay i was (laughs) about to say i'm like i'm pretty sure the state religion of anglicanism is still pretty hierarchical uh yeah so i'm going to i'm not going to talk about like gotcha canada and it's like weird stuff we're going to talk about new england and the puritans (laughs) oh boy yeah, so, um, right, the Puritans were some Protestants who were throwing a fit in England for, like, a good long time because the state just wouldn't get rid of the brothels and the naughty plays and the all of the things that existed. I don't just basic life stuff they were like no um so they tried for a few decades to live in the Netherlands like in Amsterdam of all places they're like those guys have funny hats maybe they'll be more chill and by chill I mean like definitely not at all chill um super strict religious code um uh, they were worse <laughs> shocking 
<laughs> from what we know of Amsterdam. Um, and so they spent a bunch of time like saving up money and then they came across the sea and got lost and ended up in what is now Massachusetts. Um, and the Puritans, as we've discussed before, believed in, and at the, the during the period, Puritan was like a sort of derogatory term for them, but um, I don't care about their feelings because they sucked. So Puritans... <laughs> Sorry. They're also all Puritans. dead now, so you know. <laughs> that too. Well, I'm I'm sorry if uh, you self-identify as a Puritan. Like, to my knowledge, they definitely are dead suck now. then. Definitely dead by now. If you're out here like self-identifying as a Puritan, I just I like I don't even know. Anyway, they believe in predestination, which is like a bonkers thing to try and explain. Um, I mean, it wasn't like the way that it was written about wasn't as weird or necessarily different from the way that a lot of people at the, in the period, um, were thinking about how you were saved, at least like outside of the the Catholic church. Um, essentially they were just like, look, here's what you're supposed to be doing to be good. Um, you should want to do that because it's good stuff. Like, it's good to do, and you should want to be good, and that's it. But whether or not you get into heaven is not really up to you, uh, so don't worry about it. Like, you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Just tr- tr- be good because it's good to do. Um, and then, like, there was this one part of like, Calvinism where they're like, this has already been determined because God exists outside of space and time. Um, and then, right, like, the the Puritans who came to New England made it into this whole thing about how, like, we're going to create a society just of the people who have already been saved, and we're going to know that they've already been saved because of how good they are. And they create a bunch of anxiety around, like, whether or not you're being good enough and it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, actually living within that life, there's a couple of things that happen. So like, there's not a, a cloistering part of being a good person, um, is living a life in community. Um, that means that you're supposed to get married and like go forth and be plentiful, fruitful, whatever it is. Um, and also that like, they didn't have monasteries and whatnot or places of like learning in this way because everyone was supposed to read and interact with the Bible and literacy and being literate was part of that faith um, because you were yourself supposed to be doing this religious work um, on your own outside of the church. Uh, That was part of how you proved that you were destined for heaven. Um, so it was a little bit different from how education was treated in Europe, where for a long time, right, literacy was reserved for specific classes. Um, it was people who could afford to send their children to schools and or those who had taken um, monastic orders or grown up in a, a, a church institution of some sort. Um, the like guy who was selling meat in the city you know market probably, probably doesn't didn't read, read good 
Yeah, exactly. Not, not, not needing, not really not needing, needing that. that. Um, but if you were one of the quote unquote selected, then you were interacting with your Bible all the time and you were reading the word of God and, um, that was a big part of it. So it was, you know, an almost entirely literate society. Um, and there was this uh, weird dichotomy that sort of pops up in, like, how you engage with the church. So the, the the church was sort of all of society, right? So the way that men um, proved that they were selected was to do good works out in their community. That was governing um perhaps being a preacher uh which again would take on the the nature of being a literal preacher and doing the preaching but also being um a member of like the town council and sort of running those meetings and all of that stuff and women would do work like inside the actual church right so they were the ones who were like attending all the time making sure that other people were attending doing like church functions and that sort of stuff so men were out in the world women were inside the building (laughs) essentially um and like yeah and women were supposed to be married so there weren't these like cloistered women who were outside of things and this resulted in some weird stuff happening in um in Massachusetts, uh, namely the Salem witch trial. So there is um, the most sort of credible story for why did Salem happen the way that it did is connected to the um, wars with indigenous people to the north. So where all of the trading that was coming down through to Salem, Salem was a massive port, um, there were horrifying, bloody battles. Um, The Puritans did not get along with anybody else. Um, And mostly after the indigenous people taught them how to grow corn and stuff, were like, we should kill all of these people. This is obviously a simplification, but like that's kind of what went down. And as uh, Protestants in the area sort of moved out and north, um, the indigenous people were like, weren't you guys the one who slaughtered that whole town? You shouldn't be up here. there was a lot of back and forth killing and that resulted in a lot of very young girls who were sent back to extended family that lived in the Salem region. There was a city, a city of Salem, a village of Salem and a a town of Salem. They ended up in this area. Their families were not prepared to take care of them. They didn't know what to do with them. They were like, what's going to become of you? Um, And that not having the safety net of something like a, a structured system of like, monastic living um there was nowhere to put all of these girls essentially and no one to take care of them later in their life because they weren't going to be able to get married they weren't going to have dowries um and there's like what 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 do we do with you um and this general sort of distrust of the nature of women um resulted in People starting to think that, like, oh, maybe they're witches and these young impressionable girls who had been through, like, these horrible traumas being like, I don't know, maybe I am. 
um yeah that's sort of what happens as a result of the the system of religious life that was um happening in the massachusetts bay colony and we talk about this i talk about this more extensively in our in our witch trial episode the Um, witchening the witchening yeah i think it is the witchening one uh but yeah it was um it was like not not really a a super fun time like i think that if i were to choose a religious life and period to like I just, I don't know. I feel like being a nun in the Middle Ages would just definitely be better and more secure than being a Protestant woman in the Massachusetts Bay Colony because there is a lot of pressure on making sure that, like, you were a person who was going to heaven, but also everyone was telling you that you were full of evil and sin and that you definitely weren't going to heaven. And if you were too sure about the fact that you were, like, one of the elect, um then that meant that you were going to hell. But if you were also too anxious about it, then that meant that you didn't have true faith. There's just, there's no winning. All right. So if you want to hear more about women and women's roles and how women could make choices within these systems, uh, check it out in the bonuses. And we will see y'all next week. Bye-bye. We did it. Thank you for listening to the Papiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.